Hi there, my name is Michael Harris. Welcome to Falling Up Radio. We got a really amazing show today with our, with our guest, Jennifer. But before we get to Jennifer, I want to mention a couple of things and then jump right in with her because I want to give Jennifer as much time as possible for the show. Um, again, my name is Michael. I'm author of the number one best-selling book, Falling Down, Getting Up. It was number one in recovery, stress, and yoga. And if it's something that you feel like you need to uh, get some inspiration to falling up, you can go to Falling Down, Getting Up, or Falling Up Secrets right here on this page, Falling Up Radio. A number of different places. You can get a free copy of the book. I just ask you to pay a little bit of shipping and handling to get it. Now, Falling Up Radio is really a show, you know, we've all taken dives in our lives. We've all had challenges in our lives. So this show is really about, um, it could be called um, Experience, Strength, and Hope for people that are in the midst of maybe their own personal struggles and challenges right now and want to hear how other people are doing it. We're bringing a broad spectrum of people in to do that. So before I say any more, I want to get right to our, our guest, uh, Jennifer Madsen. Jennifer is somebody that um, I met through an organization that I'm involved with on, um, I wouldn't call it financial recovery as such, but financial growth, business growth, a company called ClickFunnels, which is a really amazing company. But Jennifer, um, how do I say it, Jennifer? Uh, Jennifer used to snort cocaine out of the carpet, and now she doesn't, and um, hasn't done so for over three decades now, and really spends her time helping both men and women really find a way to, to live an outstanding life of sobriety and recovery. So I hope I got all that right, Jennifer. There's so much. Your bio is much deeper than what I've even got written, but Jennifer Madsen, I'm really happy you're here to, to, to share your, your wisdom and your experience. Hop right in. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Yes, I've come a long way since the uh, carpet days. For sure. I, I couldn't believe that. I, I, I saw that in, in some writing you had done, and it was just like, oh, my gosh, she's been there, done that. Got the T-shirt, doesn't want to go back. No, right? definitely doesn't want to go back. And isn't it so amazing? Yeah. We this place where that is you know we are we are the furthest from that that we could ever have imagined yeah. I am yeah. furthest from that woman that I ever could have imagined yeah so so tell me and in, in, in the listeners what what happened in the, that moment with the, the carpet and where your epiphany came from where it's just like you couldn't do it anymore so that was happening at a time in my life when I had gone back to Florida. I grew up in Florida. My, my, the drinking started when I was 13, about mm -hmm. 13. Um, it, it accelerated around about the time that I was 16. And then I, I went to school for a year, college for a year, moved to New York City, tried to pursue a dance career. But the, mm -hmm. the train, the momentum of that addiction uh, was just gaining speed. You know, everywhere I went, I just found more and more. So by the time I, I um, crushed my dance career with the addiction stuff here in the city, uh, I went back to Florida for a period of time. And during that time, 
Uh, it really was the worst of it, Michael. It was the 24-7 train, you know, where you're, where I was drinking first thing in the morning until I could get enough to stay in me to then get off to the races and do whatever other chemicals during the day to keep me at a level. And then, you know, the, the, the high, the cocaine, the whatever in the evening. So it was just always finding something. And... Yeah. I was going through that for a few years because uh, I, I moved back to Florida and I was teaching dance and waiting tables and singing in a band and all these things that really were just choices that I could make where people would support my lifestyle, uh, support my addiction. You know, when you're singing in a band and even if it's a dive bar, people want to give you things, including uh, cocaine and, and these other things. So what I happened- I've heard that before, yeah. It's <laughs> Yeah. And so what happened was that uh, even in the midst of the worst part of my addiction, my family, uh, while they had not cut me off, they definitely had made some, some very clear boundaries for themselves about like how close I was allowed to be. Uh, they stopped giving me money. They were like, there's plenty of love around here, but if you can act like a human, uh, which I had some difficulty with for a long time. They finally are the ones that suggested that I go back to college. Um, and so I left Florida. The, the, the cocaine in the carpet uh, story, which is in the Women on Fire book two, Anthology of Women's Stories, um, that happened about, if I can recall, you know, my memory from then is a little sketchy. Uh, that was about a year before I went to school, but back to college in South Carolina. And I got sober... Uh, three months after I hit town. I was just shy of my 24th birthday. Wow. So um, how many years of sobriety recovery do you have now? 33 in a few months. 33 years and a few months. Wow, that's huge. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Very yeah, big kudos to you. Thank you. Yeah. So keep going. Tell, tell us your story. Tell, tell us more. Yeah, so when I went, it was so interesting, you know, when my parents suggested, like, how'd you like to go back to college? Because they saw what a hot mess I was, of course, but they, you know, I was able to hide a lot of where the mess was coming from, you know, I was able to hide from them the addiction part of it. They just knew that I wasn't well. They knew that I wasn't uh, moving forward. And so when they suggested that I go back to college, I am certain that they felt like, you know, maybe this is this is the saving grace. Maybe this is the something of whatever, but it was not addressing my addiction because they didn't know that's what the problem was. I knew that it was. And so when they said, how'd you like to go back to school? I thought, you know, gosh, maybe I can get my act together. But it wasn't, it wasn't from the standpoint of like, I'm such an alcoholic and a drug addict that I really need to go get help. It, was, it wasn't that clear to me. Mm -hmm. I knew what a wreck I was, but, but the solution wasn't that clear. So somehow, as, has, as had happened many times in my life, I got into places like New York City when I came here to study dance, like amazing you know, global dance programs, like college again, because I almost flunked out the first time. I have no idea how I made it in the second time. Mm -hmm. I was like allowed admission again into this place that I had no right to be there. My grades had sucked at the other college I was in. Somehow I got in. So, you know, those doors, and I talk about those doors in the work that I do now, the coaching I do now, about the doors that open when we say yes to something, even when we don't know what we're really saying yes to, but we know we must. 
And on some level, I knew I needed to say yes to the college invitation. And so off I went to South Carolina, but the negotiating started. And I think you know what I mean by that, where I was like, okay, I have this chance. So I'll only, um, I won't smoke weed except on the weekends. And the heavy stuff is for the weekends. I'll only drink this kind of alcohol during the week, like all of this negotiating around my addiction. Uh, and all that all went to hell inside of, I don't know, 10 days. Oh, it took that long. It took oh, 10 days. Exactly. I was really trying hard to manage it. And then yeah. very soon after I hit town, I remember um, waking up at someone's apartment and being so new to town that I didn't know how to get home. I didn't know where my home was. Um, and that I had to like, figure that out but even that you know what we know in recovery is that it takes what it takes and what may seem like enough to someone else it's not that logical i mean enough is only enough when it when it is and it uh, as we know can get very very bad so well like addiction and alcoholism has often i've heard it described as a disease of more ism always wanting more 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 a hundred percent. I mean, uh, one is too many and a thousand never enough is a yeah. phrase that we hear. And so, you know, so I found my way back to my dorm, to my, to the college. I was t uh, attending bar on campus during that time. Now, the interesting thing is that my mother had gotten sober the year before, the year oh. before I went to college. And I remember uh, visiting her in treatment and I was still drinking heavily and, and I, had to, I had to smoke enough weed on the way to visiting her at treatment that I wouldn't throw up from drinking so much from the night before. And I went into this treatment center, it was on Thanksgiving that year, and I remember just shaking and just feeling so awful. And my mom had been gone for about almost her 30 days uh, at that point. Michael, she came walking out into the lobby where I was and I was, I literally looked and felt like death. And here came my mom and she looked more beautiful, more at peace than I had ever remembered seeing her. And I remember at that point thinking, they're just having this cognitive dissonance, this what is wrong with this picture? Why does she look so great? I feel like hell, I gotta leave, get to leave. She has to stay really really crazy could not make sense of it so and you wanted, did you want to stay there at that time at the, the oh, I, was horrified. I was horrified that i because you know we, we're, we're kind of selfish and a little narcissistic we're in the middle of it i wasn't huh. even, yeah. i was horrified that i had to go see my mother in treatment on thanksgiving horrified yeah. Yeah. like poor me and so but i but again not making sense of the fact that something was working in her life um but a year later I'm at school in South Carolina. I'm like a, just an absolute wreck again. And I wake up one Sunday morning after uh, attending bar the night before and then going to a party at a friend's house. Nothing particularly earth shattering that happened the night before. Another Saturday night um, of complete crazy excess blackout kind of, that wasn't unusual. But I woke up that particular morning and I, I there was a whole in me that the, that the wind blew through very, very strong. I just was so scared and so empty and so, I didn't know what to do. I just, I called my mother. Again, I was 23. 
called my mom and I said, mom, and I was sobbing, just out of control. Of course, she's worried, sick. Oh my God, what's the matter? What's wrong? Are you okay? I said, my friends drink too much and I can't drink anymore. Mm. Um, and she chuckled a little bit and I thought, what the hell she's laughing about because <laughs> I'm out of my mind. But she said, it's going to be okay, honey. Maybe um, you should look into um, the 12 step programs that are there for the children of people who are alcoholic and get on, the, you know, get in the phone book. This is a long time ago. Find the number, call them up and see if you could go to one of their meetings and, um, and get some answers. Mm-hmm. And so what's really funny to me today was that I, at that point I was like, oh, that's the answer. I'll go figure out why everyone else drinks the way they do. And then my life will be fine. And for the next three days while I was bartending on campus, wine glass in hand, I was telling everyone who would listen about how I was going to save the world, solve all my problems, because I was going to go figure out why all of my friends and family drank the way they did. So I call up uh, the, the number for this particular meeting and I get a hold of this man, Gary. I'll never forget him. And I said, Gary, my name is Jennifer. And, you know, my life is out of control because my friends drink too much and I don't want to drink anymore. And he laughs. <laughs> I thought, I don't know what's so funny about all of this these people find. But I said, and I need the 12-step meeting for families of people who drink too much so I can figure out my family. He says, okay, fine. Come down on Friday night at 6 o'clock. We are the last house on the street next to the railroad tracks. Don't miss the irony in that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, perfect. Friday, six o'clock, right down the road from my dorm. Off I will go. Two days later, I'm sitting on that. When, that was Monday. I called them. On Wednesday, I'm sitting on my dorm room bed going through my mail. And my mother had sent me the uh, young people in alcoholism uh, pamphlet that talks about if you can answer yes to certain 20 questions about your use of alcohol, abuse of alcohol, chances are you're alcoholic and here are the answers and or potential answers. And so I, I read through those and I remember Dear Abby used to post those, you know, used to publish those every once in a while in her column. And one after the other, after the other. And I just started sobbing again, just sitting on the edge of this, this dorm room bed and realizing that I didn't need a program for my friends and family, that it really was me. That was my first major burning bush light bulb moment. Well, let me ask you about the 20 questions. How many of those did you answer in the affirmative? All of them. All of them. All of them, which was why I just was so out of my, I I'd never, I knew I'd seen the questions before. I had not been willing to answer them honestly or brush them off as, as completely not for me. In that moment, Michael, I read through every single one of them and answered yes to them because that was the truth of it. My life was completely out of control. Yeah. And so I called the, the same number back. And <laughs> I got the Wait, same thing. Gary was there again? Same guy. Gary's, Gary's yeah. was. I don't know if Gary's still living. <laughs> Gary was a police officer. And I'm thinking, when does this man ever like police people? Because clearly he spends some time on this hotline. 
hey, Gary again. And I said, Gary, my name is Jennifer. I spoke to you. He says, I know you talked to you a couple days ago. I said, well, that's not about my friends and family. It's about me. Uh, and he kindly chuckled a little bit and said, same house, end of the street, next to the railroad track, 7 p.m. on Friday. And so uh, I went down the hill on, on that Friday, uh, September 25th, 1985, and walked into my first 12-step meeting, shaking, crying, 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 uh, shaking so hard I couldn't hold the coffee that they gave me. That mm. little woman who very uh, grandmotherly-like kindness to her. She and Margaret and Jamie, they came to my wedding uh, many years later. She, she tried to give me this coffee and then she was like, Get, here, I'll just take that. Let me just help you with that. She took it right back from me because I was about to wear it. Mm. Uh, walked into this meeting space and there was a sign on the wall that said, you never have to be alone again. And I prayed to whatever I thought was out there that, 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 that you meant me to. Mm -hmm. uh, I was sure that was true for everybody else, but I did not think it was true for me. It became true for me. So at, at that point, was that, you, you've never had a drink or drug since then? Nothing since. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. I lived in that, I lived in that little house at the end of the street by the railroad tracks the, the, the time that I was in Columbia. If I was not in uh, classes, I was in that little clubhouse because mm -hmm. I knew, plus I was bartending to put myself through school. And I don't recommend that for anybody who's newly sober. Um, it was fine. It, it worked out fine for me. I didn't drink on the job. I mean, when I put it down, I put it down. I haven't picked up since. Um, and so, so how long were you in the bartender job once you stopped drinking? Four years. Wow. That's yeah, a long time and, and uh, trying to make a living and it was a college town you know that was one of the jobs you could get that um, didn't require much and I'd had a lot of restaurant experience up to that point. And you paid for you probably got some pretty good tips. Yeah because I was the only sober one in the room and uh, I took really good care of people. <laughs> so. Yeah. so so from from that point from that meeting and seeing that sign on the wall, you never have to be alone again. Mm. Um, how, how'd you uh, change your life? I mean, what epiphanies came along the way? Well, it was so interesting, right? Because again, I was, I was young. And once I, there are a lot of people who have said to me that have heard my story. They're like, you got sober when you were 23. How bad could it have been? Mm -hmm. um, half dead was bad enough. Yeah. Half dead was bad enough. And that's exactly where I was when I came in. Yeah. The good news is, is that I started to clean up pretty quickly. Right mm -hmm. now, I, my mind was still bananas. But mm -hmm. physically, you know what I mean? Like physically, my eyes got clear again, my skin cleared up, I looked better. And because I had this theater background, and I was young, and I was in recovery rooms with people who were a good bit older at the time, you know, back then there weren't a lot of people my age who were putting it down. Um, I performed my sobriety for the first couple of years until God, the universe could take over. And, and uh, I got a real ego reality check about two years in because, you know, I would go to meetings at that point, I would go to these recovery meetings at that point, And I could just spout off everything I, I had like memorized all the material and I had lots of 
people who'd been in recovery for a long time who took me aside and were like, you really don't know anything at this point. You might want to stop talking and maybe start listening. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do that so nicely, actually. There was one woman who scared the living crap out of me when she gave me that message. But I started listening. And I started listening to what was happening in other people's lives and how they were making it forward and what they had been through and really looking and listening for those similarities, even if they were 62 and I was 25. The more I did that, because I was in recovery meetings and workshops and, and conferences like all the time, because First of all, I didn't trust myself to be anywhere else for a very long time. And then I, it, it grew on me from a community perspective. Like I found out so many friends of mine that I met through my recovery that were funny and smart and, you know, fun. So as I had the support of those people, you know, my foundation of my recovery, I, I got the courage and the confidence to branch out into the rest of the world, which is what I teach now in the Next Step Sobriety courses, because there came a point where I knew that I needed to take that foundation, that learning and, and everything I'd been given into the world, into life, mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise I just knew there was more than just not drinking and not using. Yeah. Uh, and again, there were a lot of people who saw a lot for me that I couldn't see for myself in the beginning. And I just believed them when they said, the sky's the limit. You can do whatever you want. So the first job, like real job offer that I got after um, college, after I finally got out of college, I was about five years sober. And I got this sales job with a dating service company. Now, this is way before all of the internet, you know, swipey stuff, right? So it was a matter of meeting with people one-on-one and having this very heart to heart. You became a matchmaker. I was, yeah. Yeah, and I was yeah. great at it. I, it turned out I was great at it. And what uh-huh. came with that was that uh, I started making money. The uh-huh. problem was I hadn't yet formed an identity in recovery of being grown up and good with money. I was just like, yay, there's you know, the open road of life and I'm not drinking and I was making more money than I knew what to do with. Um, which grew from there. I became a franchise owner in Denver for that company and made, I think I built that company to 2 million in two years. I was making more money than I knew what to do with. And the best parts of it were when all of that crashed. Now, I didn't feel that way during the crash. Let me tell you that because that huge business um, went to hell in a handbasket and I didn't get drunk over it. I didn't use over it. That was one of the biggest lessons of my recovery that I could have that much success and that far of a loss, not use over it. And if that were the truth, then I could do anything. I could now, go. Were you, were you, did you ever think about using? Did you ever want to use through it? No, no, I was in the middle of a lot of pain. But what happened, actually, I should probably fill in a little bit of the blanks on that first couple of years. As I mentioned, I was very ego-driven in the very beginning, and so there was a lot of performing going on. About about a year and a half into my recovery, um, I was in a very small town in North Carolina with my dad and my stepmom. She was there to get her master's degree. And she would get me to the two meetings a week that they had in this tiny little town whenever we could, but I had a lot of time on my own. So I was hiking one day, and 
I was walking up a hill. I don't hike really, but I was walking and hiking. And the most unbelievable obsession to drink came and hit me like like someone had just taken their hands on me and knocked me on the ground. I mean, I literally, it came and I sat and I cried and I thought, holy, I don't know if I can swear on this program, but wow. Uh, it came out of nowhere. It was out of nowhere. Like I had not had any of that for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And here it was for no particular reason. And it scared the crap out of me. I sat down on that earth. I cried. I prayed to whatever is out there. I remember clear as a bell, Michael, because so many things in my life since then have been gauged by that moment of truth is what I call it. Um, I prayed to whatever was out there and said, take this. I can't do this. I'll do this. I'll do yeah. supposed to do. I can't do that. And so I've so never had a desire to drink or use since then. No, that was my spiritual experience. That was my, my gigantic. Yeah. And the, and the decisions that I've made since then, again, I, I called that then and I call it now my moment of truth, that moment of pure surrender. Uh, because what I had done before was decide. I had decided to go into the rooms. I decided to put down the drink. I decided to do the work of, becoming a functioning member of society again. But until my ass got thrown on the side of that mountain by that lightning bolt, that was my surrender moment. And yeah. so I've been at points in my life now with business and relationships, with money, um, whatever, where, that, where there's a very pivotal thing that's happening for me. And I look to make a decision or surrender to something, to an idea or, or a... Uh, a, a yearning, if you will, I think about it in terms of whether or not it's a moment of truth. Is it a fun idea or is it a real moment of truth? Mm -hmm. So I have that as a gauge and I, I am more grateful for that than I know how to say really. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, you, you mentioned uh, sober you and a couple of, of other things that you're doing. Tell us a little bit how you got to, the point in, in your own re recovery and sobriety that you wanted to do this next step. Yes. So I didn't, uh, I started Next Step Sobriety and Next Step Sober You last year. Um, mm. Although I had started uh, writing for and communicating to the recovery community through my books uh, many years before that. Yep. But even before the books, uh, in 2003, I... Um, I had been, you know, I, I had the dating service business, made a bunch of money. It crashed. My husband and I, now ex-husband and I kind of rebuilt, got into another business. And I was really having this, not crisis of conscience per se, but really knowing that I needed my life to be about more, uh, more than, than steps and meetings alone could do for me. I needed more purpose and fulfillment in the world at large. And I needed to learn some very special skills about that that are not taught in recovery rooms. Mm -hmm. So, but I didn't know where to go. And it was very soon after that, again, a moment of truth. I am ready for this. I, I opened my heart to it. The next thing I know, I'm at a Tony Robbins event, uh, walking on fire. And 
in the meantime, I had started my coaching business. So this was 16 years ago. Um, and I knew that I wanted that business to be about helping people close the gap in very important parts of their lives. I'd done it in the relationship realm. I had done it for people with money. I had done it uh, in recovery as, you know, sponsoring other people in their journey. I knew then I wanted to branch out. Well, what happened was that I started this coaching business and it turned into an executive coaching path because some of my earliest clients were from the corporate arena. And were, were, were they people that were sober that were in corporate or they just happened to be in corporate? They just happened to be in corporate. They wanted my assistance on closing the gap in their lives. They liked my story. I didn't lead with my recovery story, but uh, they liked the sensibility of what came from some of those messages. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, uh, the executive coaching business really took off over the last 15, 16 years that I've had that. During that time, when I hit my 25th anniversary in recovery, I wrote a book of meditations called Living the Promises. And um, that was kind of a side thing. It was, a, it, was, it was really, I was just called to do that. I had been writing. I'd recently gotten on Facebook right before. Um, frankly, the people on that page, which still exists, uh, we started in 2009, helped me build that book. They gave me feedback. They were an amazing focus group. And then the page itself grew uh, by leaps and bounds after that point. Mm -hmm. I had to put that focus a little bit on hold. I got divorced. I moved across the country uh, to come out here and serve more of my executive, co executive coaching clients. And then last year, last year, actually, in the organization that you and I have in common, mm -hmm. I sat in this giant arena uh, thinking that I was there to grow another branch of my executive coaching business, knowing in my heart that I was not having that moment of truth around that idea, not knowing what I was supposed to do with that, except sit with it and allow the universe to work as it has. Uh, and the next thing I knew, somebody in one of the chairs around me talked about using this particular um, uh, information from that group to help them support their work with people in recovery. And I thought, oh, that's what I'm here for, is to learn how to build it and do that. Yeah. And since so that time, I've revived the Living the Promises page. Um, we started Next Step Sobriety, Next Step Sober You. Next Step Sobriety really is about once you have your foundation of recovery, you're solid. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get into the conversation about whether there's a cured or a recovered or anything else, but you've got your foundation and you are in the world, but you really want what's next for your life. And you need that guidance on the vision of it and raising your identity to support that and aligning resources and mapping all that out. That's what I knew I wanted to do. Now I do that now for people in recovery and for the population at large that wants that kind of guidance on what's next. Yeah. A particular love is doing it for people in recovery because they've got such a great foundation. Now, when you talk about that next step in recovery and helping people, what type of things are you doing? Are you helping them in relationship and finances and in business or work? Where's your focus? Uh, my focus is on the method that they can use for any one of those areas. I do not claim to be an expert in everything. Mm -hmm. What I am an expert in is the method for breakthrough. Mm. Uh, all of the decades of sobriety, the decades now of, of personal coaching with people in a lot of different environments. I mean, thousands of people, literally. Mm -hmm. I have a method that, that is 
proven to break through to what's next. So if you come in with an idea of what area of your life needs the most attention, then I will take you through this five-step method. And through that, you will have the breakthrough to what's next, depending on what it is that you want to focus on. Money, health, uh, career, relationship, business. Could really be anything. It really can be anything. It really has been anything. I've really done that with people of all walks of life uh, in all different circumstances. Yeah. So now, now, now that you've re reinvigorated that, are you doing more of that or are you doing more of the executive coaching? Well, you know, I have a very core business in executive coaching that uh, I've had for many, many years. And so that's been the core. Uh, what I found out recently, as recently as last week, mm. is that there is many people in my world who are not in recovery, who want that breakthrough method, as there are people in recovery who, who've said they want it. Yeah. And what I've done is taken the step of really um, making clear to all of my audiences that I was bringing recovery principles to the corporate world and corporate leadership stuff to the recovery world. And now I'm going to bring it all to everybody. Yeah. So wherever people are in their lives, because I think everyone's recovering from something. Yeah. Some, some addiction, some uh, misdirection. Yeah. That want to recenter and go forward from a more purposeful place. And it's interesting, and, and I don't know whether you have had the same experience, but looking at recovery material and the 12 steps and the, the different principles, they're not really unique in, in the world of um, uh, spiritual principles. They are just designed, at least in, in, in the 12-step world, designed for people that need recovery but that the principles are the same regardless. Yes, I absolutely agree. And yeah. you know, at the same time, what I found was that I was getting a lot of spiritual support. I was missing the practical skills that I needed. Like mm -hmm. the 12-step rooms were not set up, nor should they be, frankly, to address my relationship with money and mm -hmm. teach me how to budget and handle money and, and work with money or grow my business or... Uh, prepare myself better for a relationship in very practical terms. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I also wanted to do that, Michael, where, where I am able to share that information with people. And in Sober You, which is recovery specific, addiction recovery specific, we talk about like how to take all of those principles into a very practical application. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise I'm going to sit around and talk about and intellectualize those principles and certainly I apply them to my life to some degree, but actual mastery of those principles in a very practical manner takes a very specific process to do that. And yeah. that's what we're doing. Yeah. It, it's a, a lot of people under or have read a lot of material and in, in all this and, and have a lot of that. Um, I've heard it called self-knowledge, but unless they take the action, unless they, Unless the steps are taken, nothing changes. That's right. That's right. It's just more information. Yeah, just more information. Yeah. So uh, that's why we call it next step. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like that name. It, it's interesting because I've I've done next level type work and and different things. It's real similar to, yeah. to what I hear you saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when people have the the permission, if you will 
to have a vision again. Yeah. Have a real vision for the next step of their life, right? A lot of the women that I've worked with in the last year since we started Sober You, for instance, um, had gotten to a point. And listen, that point is, is an important point. They stopped drinking, they stopped using, they started to change the dynamic in their life. And a lot of them got stuck. Yeah. Like, uh, if I want something more for my life, it must mean like I'm not grateful for what I have. Gratitude and aspiration are not mutually exclusive. That is like our war cry for this group. Mm-hmm. So we have both. And actually, my, I believe my spiritual responsibility is to be of greatest service that I can be. And so I must evolve. And in that evolving, right, I discover all sorts of things. But, but showing people the way to a vision and the way to raise their identity to match that vision rather than the opposite is glorious what they do with that. The relationships they're repairing as a result. The businesses they're opening as a result. It's been, it's been unbelievable. I'm, I'm so honored to guide people in that process and hear what they're doing with it. Yeah, yeah. So you, you mentioned a few minutes ago um, about a recent trip that you were on in have an epiphany that you went through. Yes. And I mean, here you are, some, somebody that's been through some pretty big epiphanies in your life. Yes. So what, what was this epiphany? And I mean, sometimes I like to call them like a quantum leap or shape-shifting. Mm-hmm. And those things are really a natural part of the world. Even like one day it's sunny and the next day it's snowing and the next day it's sunny again to me is the world doing its shape-shifting thing, right? So when, when you take a look at what happened recently with your epiphany, would you look at it in that way or, or how would you look at that? You know, it was really an interesting process of, you know, because this particular uh, marketing organization teaches us how to take our real stories and tell them in the most impactful way for the audience we're there to serve. I was on that trip to focus on the people I was serving in the recovery community. And so one of my very, very close friends and and trusted business advisors uh, heard me telling the story of what I was up to for sober women. uh, And she said to me, what if you made this available to people on a broader scale and let the people who identify with the sober part of your story come and the other people who really want what you have, because she knows my work, mm-hmm. also come. Mm-hmm. And my immediate thing was like, oh, oh, whoa, I'm not sure I can mix the executive of this and that and oh my gosh, but if I abandon them, like I was making up all kinds of things because that's what the brain does initially mm-hmm. with familiar territory resist well i've just been i've been sober long enough and i've been in epiphany land long enough to know that that's just noise yeah so once the noise settled i got behind the mic in one of the learning sessions that we had and i gave my 30 second uh commercial if you will on the sober work that i was doing with sober women and i had more than a dozen women come up to me throughout the week. One of them hunted me down in like the ice cream place and she slid into the seat in front of me and she said, I need to talk to you. <laughs> okay, I'd never met her. She said, you were talking about the work that you do on breaking through and next steps and, and vision and all that, but I'm not in the sober community. Can I come too? I want to come to your event. When is your event? Can I come? 
I was like, okay, you're like the 12th person that's asked me that. So the epiphany was, and I sat with it once I got home, the epiphany was there are more people who need this work. And I need to bring this to as many people in the world as I can. And that includes very much the sober community and anyone else who is determined to break through to their best self and really be of greatest service in the world, whatever that means for them, in whatever area that means. Mm -hmm. So I sent out an email to all of my people, my executives, my CEOs, my, my everybody's and said, some of you know this about me and some of you don't, this recovery piece and the work that I've done over there and the work I've done over here. And now we're gonna do it all together. I got some of the most amazing responses. Really? I did. So, I mean, are, are you planning right now like a type of seminar or workshop? Is- yes. Yes. As yeah. a matter of fact, we will, do, um, we will do the Next Step Breakthrough Experience, which is a free webinar. That's going to be uh, coming out again in February. And then, uh, the, which is going to talk about my eight-week breakthrough course. Uh, that goes through the whole method I was talking about of vision and identity and the practical and the profound. And it's an extraordinary course. Um, that is the foundation of information for the Next Step Breakthrough Retreat that we'll have in Tampa November 14th to the 17th. So November 14th. So if people want to attend, they still have time. They do. They do. We have yeah. not launched the page yet for them to register. This all came about in the last five days. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I love stuff like that and it's like epiphanies and it's like I, I don't know if this is your, your experience with it some epiphanies I have this some I don't but it's just like it's like there's no other choice but to do that right I mean when you know it it's that moment of truth for me right I check in when I get still enough quiet enough and check in and it really lands like that moment of truth then I must act on it if yeah. it's it's kind of a curiosity or a maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are you, do you meditate on a regular basis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I am a practicing Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist of about 15 years. Wow, that's great. I do tranquility meditation and insight meditation, and they call it practice for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> More yeah. calm than others. Yeah, and so you, you do that on like every morning or on a regular basis? Or? Yeah, I have a uh, meditation is part of my morning routine, power uh, mm-hmm. rituals, if you will, that I go through in the morning that involve yeah. yoga and meditation and visualization. Yeah, yes. that, 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 that's a whole nother rabbit hole we could go down, I'm yeah, sure. We talk about meditation, yes. Yeah, and have, have, when, when you introduced meditation, was there epiphany or a shift that began to happen? You know, it's interesting, Michael, because I had been introduced to a different form of Buddhism when I was living in New York City at the height of my addiction back when I was 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was too drunk to appreciate it, although there was some part of me that realized the benefit of it in calming my mind, particularly in the midst of the chaos of my mind and my addictions and the city and trying to make my way here and all of that. So. I t- when I moved back to Florida, I, I tried to keep practicing when I, when I got back, but there wasn't a community for me to connect with, and it kind of went by the wayside, so that when Buddhism came into my life again, and with it, the meditation, the different meditations um, between tranquility and insight, 
when I met my teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, I knew he was my teacher. I knew instantly he was my teacher. When, when you know, the student is ready, the teacher appears, right? So that being in process of then learning and practicing literally on a daily basis what it means to calm my mind and find greater insight um, felt like coming home. I was coming home to that. Like it had just been waiting for me to come. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it's been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and do you feel like that has, um, this is, meditation is a huge part of my life. And, you know, I've, I've been practicing yoga for 30 years, been meditating for a number of years. Uh, what, one of my brothers, I don't know if you've heard of Hollow Sink. Are you familiar with Hollow Sink? No. Um, he was one of the first people back in the 80s that um, started creating binaural uh, meditation where it's embedded underneath the music and the headphones and all that. Yep. Um, so he was one of the um, leaders in that. And Hollow Sink and Centerpoint was a company that came out of that, um, which a lot of people have utilize that and even within our click funnels community there's a lot of people that i've talked to that credit meditation and hollow sync for their success in the in the business side of what oh, that's they're, great. yeah it's amazing to be able to to cut through the clutter of of the mind right you know, not get attached to what comes up i saw the dalai lama teach out here in the city after i moved back and i think in 2014 was when i saw him and he said you know the, the point of meditation is not to stop thought. You can't stop thought. He said, I can't stop thought. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as we're in these relative bodies, you know, in this, on this plane, but to stop chasing our thoughts yeah. and see them as they arise and to see them for what they are and to watch them pass like clouds in the sky. And that yeah. takes practice because I like to star in my own movie about things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Um, so as we come to the end of our time, let me ask you a couple of things. Did, did I hear you say that you have another book coming pretty soon? I'm working on another book. Let's hope it comes out soon. It's called This Sober Life. And so sometime in the next five or 10 years, maybe, or sooner? By the end of the year. Let's oh, by the end of the year. Okay. I think yeah. somewhere on the web it says July of 20, 2019. Please don't hold me to that. Oh, I'm going to hold you to it. Yeah. This I, I, my, my falling down book, um, I had kind of been working on it for 10 years, but not a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And when I made the decision in 2011 to write it, I made a decision to have it done within 90 days, and I had it done in 79 days. Yeah. I just um, did it. Yeah. Yes. So This Sober Life will be out by the end of this year. Or July, whichever. Yeah. Then, <laughs> yes, that's my, yeah. that's my goal. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'd love to um, have you come back after you've finished that book. Would you come back? Absolutely. I'd love to, Michael. This has been right. amazing. Okay. And one, one of the things that, that I, I wrote down because it, it, it really struck me was, um, you know, that, that determined to break through, that, that next step breakthrough kind of idea. Mm -hmm. And with the, with the listeners, do you have maybe two or three ideas surrounding that and maybe how somebody can, can maybe even have a breakthrough after listening to this or while listening to this? Sure. I, I know that some of my early breakthroughs, when, before I even had that word for it uh, in sobriety, 
were, were when I saw the similarities between me and someone who looked and sounded and seemed like anything but similar. Yeah. When I was really willing to get into that space of curiosity and connection and similarity, and, and to go with that and see what I could learn from that, that was a breakthrough for me. Because when I came into recovery, I had all the answers, did not know the questions, but had all of the answers, mine, yours, everybody's. Yeah. Which is why several people, old timers were like, stop talking. You don't know anything, right? Thank God for them. Um, yeah. That breakthrough of let yourself be in this place of curiosity, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been sober or not, no matter what you've been through, anything is possible from this point forward if you're willing to see yourself in a new light. That takes sitting in a place or being with people that can help you give yourself permission to have that vision for what's next. Yeah. And then, oh my gosh, like the doors, as I said in the very beginning of the interview, the doors that come open as a result of that are uh, magical. Yeah, yeah, cool. What, um, for some people are watching the video here, but some people may, may be listening to the audio. Uh, do you have a website that somebody could go to to find out more about what you do? Absolutely, nextstepsobriety.com. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll take you to uh, the information about Next Steps Sober You. Yep. Uh, that program, Next Step Sobriety on Facebook, our page on Facebook will um, absolutely give you insight into what we're talking about in that conversation. Um, yeah, those would be the best places to go. Wonderful. And if you are listening to this on audio, if you go to fallingupradio.com, uh, you'll find Jennifer's episode there and um, we'll have a page there with additional contact information as well. And you can go there um, and to find her websites or anything that, that might be updated. Or uh, perhaps when her book comes out sometime this year, um, we'll post something there as well. Um, so, Jennifer, it's been really great. I, there are so many things that you said that struck me. And there were so many rabbit holes that I felt we could go down and just talk about that for hours. Thank so, you so much, Michael. It was an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you. Yeah, so your, your insights have been great. And um, with that, again, it's uh, um, say your websites again. Nextstepsobriety.com. Yep. Or you can find Next Step Sobriety as a Facebook page. Really easy to find. Perfect. Thank you for being here. Again, this is Michael Harris, Falling Up Radio with Jennifer Madsen, talking about uh, really the idea that we can break through anything, that it's never too late to fall back up and to really live an incredible life, you know, with ourselves and with, with others. And so take that to heart. If you, if you took notes here, um, you know, maybe go back through the notes. I wrote three pages of notes just in the conversation here. So um, I learned a lot and I hope you did too. So have a great day. And, uh, Everybody talk to you soon. Say goodbye, Jennifer. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thank you.